fact, I'm from the Institute of Education. In fact, I'm located in um, this CGHE, the Centre for Global Higher Education. And before I start, I might say that we take we have um, seminars every Thursday um, at 12:30 in the Institute of Education. The room uh, changes. Um, and sometimes they're located in Oxford. But um, if you check the Centre for Global Higher Education website and look at events, uh, you'll see what's coming up. So you can see if there's anything interesting. I think it's being currently being populated now with the people for the next, uh, next well, next academic year. In fact. Um, okay, other than that, um, I'm going to be talking about um, alternative providers and graduate employment. Um, let's have a quick look at my... this. This might be, you might expect me to end with this. What I found is um, data from HESA, and we can see the destination of leavers um, in both the uh, public providers and the private alternative providers. For alternative, I really mean private at the moment, so um, that's what I'll be talking about. Um, but um, here, what we can see actually, there isn't that much difference uh, between, here's the totaling work and further study, so these are their employment destinations, 91% there, 87% here, and um, unemployment here for alternative providers at 6%, which compares to 5% for the public providers. Um, and then these other, uh, these are just sort of subgroups of, of this. Um, so really, from that perspective, it doesn't look like there's that much difference in terms of the um, employment of the graduates. Um, these are all, all uh, people on... Um, designated courses, uh, so they got public funding. Um, but what I'm going to do through the course is break down some of these figures so we can see where there are differences between these two uh, groups of providers. And um, But before that, I'm going to talk a bit about the alternative providers uh, as a sector and also look at a kind of one of the more traditional aspects of alternative providers that tends to get overlooked um, because it's not in these kind of official data, uh, but it is it is a more traditional provision they make, and it's the kind of graduates they have where we could treat alternative providers as in fact the established providers, and it's the public providers that are new and uh, uh, challenging. In fact, the alternative providers, but we'll see that when we get there. We'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. so. One of the features of alternative providers, the private sector, is it's subject to in fact, very few regulations. Um, the title university, the title university, university college, degree awarding powers are legally protected. Um, so you have to apply to get those. It used to be in the gift of the Privy Council. Uh, now it's located in the Office for Students or the um, national governments of. Uh, the rest of the UK, um, except Northern Ireland, where it's not through any kind of elected body there. It's through um, the Department of Education because their government isn't functioning. Um, so we've got these legally, legally protected powers. Um, also, restrictions apply to the, those alternative providers, mainly private institutions that are eligible to enrol students with publicly backed tuition fee loans. Um, I, and that's why I'm going to refer to for now as course designation. And then other restrictions apply if you want to recruit international students, you require tier four status. So those are really the restrictions that apply to the alternative sector. But other than that, no official record is kept concerning private higher education, which is one of the reasons why I'm conducting the research that I am in a very broad sense. 
Yeah, so recently, well, since 2004, the government's been actively promoting the uh, alternative sector. It's been aimed at expanding undergraduate provision and a sort of critical moment really is the Higher Education and Research Act of 2017, which restructured oversight of the HE sector and it's designed to place both public and private providers under the same regulatory framework. Hitherto they were in two separate frameworks. And private providers will for the first time be able to access grants for teaching and research, that's public grants, so in addition to their um, access to uh, tuition fee loans. They're also, as a programme of uh, allowing them immediate access to, all, to degree awarding powers, which previously was a quite uh, long-winded process, and a swift and more straightforward access to the title of the university. So those are the kind of attitudes that have changed in the government and been directed at the alternative sector. Now, one of the reasons that the government's adopted this attitude is a sort of theoretical underpinning <coughs> is that they want to make alternative rather easier to enter and expand in the belief that this is going to provide competition and it's going to help drive up teaching standards, enhance the life chances of students, drive economic growth and be <coughs> social mobility. This is all taken from success as a knowledge economy which is the white paper that preceded the um, Higher Education and Research Act and the kind of uh, explanation of what it's supposed to do. So basically they're going to uh, improve the capacity of the higher education sector and transform its ability to respond to economic demands and rapidly changing graduate employment landscape. So that's the that's what they're investing in the idea of competition uh, from alternative providers, private providers and particularly for-profit providers that they'll be more responsive to demand and they'll challenge uh, established providers in the public sector then you'll get these benefits. Um, so that's what they're expecting and that's why we've seen changes in attitudes. And what I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about what the private HE um, sector looks like in the UK. We've got at the moment, last time I checked, five private universities, four university colleges, and one further institution with degree awarding powers. So these are all these are all the institutions that meet the criteria for those legally protected powers and titles. But that's only a tiny proportion of the um, alternative sector. We identified about 813 institutions teaching some kind of HE qualification in the UK, mainly uh, located in England, um, but some scattered throughout the whole of the UK. And. This is a list of the private universities and colleges that we have in the UK. They're all uh, located in England. And um, other than the University of Buckingham, which was the first private university, and for decades the only one, founded in 1973, got its university title by 83, it's the only one that really resembles a university as we might think of it. Um, the rest well, can largely be characterised as quite long-standing colleges, but colleges of professional training. Really they're concentrating on areas that universities uh, didn't touch, and we'll have a, a look at this in more detail um, when we consider one of these. But we can see here, BPP was, um, grew out of an accountancy training college. The University of Law, we're going to look at in a minute, but we can see what that would concentrate on. Regents University is a business school, and then we've got these specialist colleges that are quite old, old um, and non-established. University College of State Management is very specific. Uh, London Institute of Banking and Finance, which um, 
is a university college, but it, for some reason it got awarded that title and now doesn't want to actually use it in its, in its title, but um, there we go. Then osteopathy and this is uh, chiropathy. So these two colleges are quite recently been awarded uh, university college title. We can see the one I left out is Arden is an online um, provider. Um, but we can, and Ashridge doesn't have either title, but it does have degree awarding powers, and that's basically a business school. Um, so these these colleges make up sort of their characteristic of the, as it were, traditional alternative of private sector. In, they concentrated on professional education that wasn't supplied by universities, and some of these things, there's a good reason for that, as we'll see. As we take a look at the University of Law, and there's a reason why I'm talking about the university. We'll get to uh, get to that in graduate employability. It's going to take us along that route. So basically, the, the, those colleges, or some of them anyway, exist because of the introduction in the late um, 19th century, around 1870s, as we're going to see another example next, I introduced uh, exams, uh, qualifying exams for professions. Uh, that one became for solicitors, it became compulsory in 1877. They were toying with it in the sort of latter half of the 18th century. That's the uh, 19th century, sorry. Um, Okay, so you got exams, but there wasn't any provision. There was no um, university provision. Um, so you basically got spontaneously uh, generated these um, crammers, really. So Gibson and Weldon established in 1876, the connection there. Um, and then the Law Society established its own school of law in 1902. These are just basically in response to the demand for tuition that wasn't being met anywhere else. And then the Law Society began licensing public commercial colleges to teach their exams in the 1960s. And we're going to see the consequence of that in the subsequent uh, overhead. Um, but these are all private enterprises. Um, Gibson and Weldon merged with the School of Law to form the College of Law in 1962, and the College of Law eventually became the University of Law, which has got this title granted to it. Um, so that's, that's basically the history of how we got the University of Law emerging out of a demand for education that was being met elsewhere in the, uh, in the higher education sector, particularly the public sector, where there were um, law departments of law, they didn't teach um, the practical um, skills you needed to qualify as a solicitor, they teach things like Roman law, um, things like that, um, it was law, but it wasn't going to get you very far if you wanted to be a practicing solicitor or a barrister. And these are the barristers. So in English, if there's anyone who's unfamiliar with the English legal system, there are two kinds of lawyers. I'm looking at you in case you don't know. There's barristers, which are the ones that stand up in court and they have wigs and gowns and they speak directly to the judge. And then solicitors don't go, don't appear in court. Occasionally they do, but they do things, they do face-to-face -face with the client and they hire a barrister for them if they need it and they do other things like conveyancing for if you buy a house or sell a business or something. Um, and there are much more lawyers, uh, solicitors, than barristers. Um, okay, so we got a similar similar situation. The barristers had their exam in 1872. Um, it, then again, the demand for tuition led to the Council of Legal Education. It was a bit earlier, but um, there was a lot of pressure on barristers to introduce some sort of training course. So they, you know they. And they had these inns of court. They still exist. They're very ancient, but they'd stopped teaching by the Civil War, and there was no real education in law between then and these the establishment of these schools. So the inns of court law school established in 1962. It's really 
that, that, developing to that. And that had exclusive authority over the bar exam, which is what you have to pass to be a, um, a barrister. But since 1997, it lies to other providers. And um, eventually, the Court Law School merged with City University, which is like the City Law School, which still exists, and that's a public provider. So you can see them going in two different directions, although they both had their roots in, in private provision. Now, um, these are basically, this is when I said I was going to take a different look at um, the, uh, the graduates of private providers here. We're looking at those who joined various law schools in order to qualify to be a barrister. And this is the exhaustive list of all um, institutions that are, are licensed to teach for the bar exam. Um, this would be about 2015-16 I took this data. <coughs> here they are, and we've got these people. Now, you never needed actually to be a graduate to be a barrister. You just the only thing you ever needed to do was pass that um, bar exam. Um, so it was never a graduate professional. Well, now you'd find it very difficult to get on any of the courses offered by these schools without having attended the university, but actually practising or you don't need to be um, a graduate. Um, so these are the graduating schools for um, qualifying to be a barrister. It's a, their course lasts one year, and it's reasonably one of the most expensive courses uh, available in Europe. I, I can find examples of private providers offering much more expensive courses than that, but I think what they mean in ones that are rec have large recognition. Um, but anyway, what we've got here is a series of schools. Now, this BPP is a private school, um, and it got multiple sites, as indeed does the University of Law. We can see it, Birmingham, Leeds, London, um, BPP there, Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, London. These are just separated because they charge different rates to study. These other um, public, between these are the public providers, these are often, is this your? Yeah. yeah. The, these are often post-92 universities, and that's because they inherited the right to teach these things from the small commercial colleges, the public colleges that were licensed to, in the 1960s, start teaching. Well, the, the, for barristers, it was in 1990, but they were licensed colleges and then polytechnics that became um, universities. And polytechnics are designed to be much more practical. Uh, so they've got a sort of, they've cornered the market in that. Um, and then you don't really get much of it in the more established universities. Um, so what we can see is, in fact, it's, although there are many more public providers teaching law, um, look at the number of places and the number of these, it's about 50-50, somewhere like that. Or in fact, there might even be slightly more in the private providers still. Um, so that's what you have to pay to do it. It lasts a year. As we can see, and you can do it part-time, it's cheaper. And to see what happens. There's something, I wouldn't call it a scandal, but there's long been a concern about the oversupply of courses. You can see how many people want to be barristers each year. There are only about 15,000 practicing barristers in the country. Um, you can see from, well, it doesn't matter which year we pick, it's the pattern's the same. Large number of applications, smaller number of enrollments. Not a bad pass rate, it's reckoned it's about 70% pass rate. It's always been a very easy exam to pass. It was made easy because they didn't like the government interfering, the bar didn't like the government interfering with their um, admissions, but the government insisted they do have some exam, so they made it easy. 
And it's remained that way ever since, ever since 1872, I think. And what you get is a, a pathway. But the, now pupillage is the year's um, practical um, training you have to do with a, a practicing law firm in order to get a job. Um, and you can see the difference all the way along there. The massive um, underemployment of people that are um, qualified to be a barrister. And even if you get pupillage, which is a one-year training course, basically it's a sort of... Um, uh, it's not really training, actually. It's more just being a barrister, but you're not employed properly. I think you used to have to actually pay for yourself during that one year, but that's not the case anymore. Um, and then the employment rates are even lower, lower than that. So, um, yeah, so you get 70% pass rates. A lot of people pass but um, the ratio is approximately three to one of, of uh, employment, although that drops somewhat because a lot of people uh, can take this course, but they go off and they teach um, in the Commonwealth. You can use it uh, to, to practice law in Nigeria and places. Um, so the competition isn't quite that fierce, but it's still about two to one. Um, the figures are Yeah, so we can see Northumbria University, it only has a, a, a rate of, um, Pupils of, of just, uh, uh, just over two percent. BPP London, which is a private provider, um, about almost twenty-five percent. But it was the most expensive course. The then the, uh, I've looked at the fee. I totted them up. The private is generally more expensive than the public, but not by much. So the the graduates of this um, bar professional training institute um, face competition for their own annual cohort to get a job, but uh, to get pupillage. But they also have to. Um, compete with everyone who failed to get it in the previous year um, so that adds to the numbers uh, that they're competing with and someone writing on this able says that competition is intensified in personal contacts and descriptive characteristics that means not to do with your attainment but other characteristics uh, clearly weigh very heavily so in this sense the graduates of um, of the alternative sector aren't any more disadvantaged in fact they may well be um, in a better place to um, obtain employment, at least in this area, although the whole sector is facing um, enormous competition um, and there's criticism about the number of um, actual you know, places available to study for your, your bar professional course um, and they're just <coughs> exploiting people's ambitions because there's very little chance of uh, you know, actually getting a job as a barrister at the end of it. Um, in Scotland, this certificate has, they've got an equivalent, it's not the same, you can use that um, to pursue other jobs. Um, but, if you, but if you take this one, its only use is uh, as a barrister, it has no further use. And if you want to say, retrain, if you want to work in the law as a solicitor, you have to go right back to the beginning and start doing the exams for that. You don't get any dispensation because you've acquired that qualification. So in this, in this respect, we can see the uh, alternative sector, the private sector, is that well able to compete because it was the um, established sector really, uh, and its graduates, you know, one year course, they're not, uh, they weren't trained, they weren't uh, educated there. In fact, they were probably educated at um, quite high prestige universities. Um, that they're doing all that's okay. That where it's established, it's fine. We might say, although that's not to ignore the kind of problems. That the graduates might face afterwards. But as a sector, it's fine. 
But when we look, and the research we've done looking at the HE sector in the UK, it's, we see it's more geared to sub-bachelor and postgraduate qualification, like we saw, and professional entry development, um, than teaching a standard undergraduate. And where you do have that, you get um, degrees validated by established universities because it's previously been so difficult to get um, degree awarding powers. And that also, so you can be validated teach degrees by establishing or accredited to teach recognised qualification, often vocational, might allow you enter the professions. It's not just things like the um, bar professional course, but um, off course got a massive database of what are basically recognised qualifications. You can apply to teach those, and um, if you're accredited, then you're allowed to go ahead. But you don't set the um, you don't set the uh, course and you don't set the exam. And then you could also teach in-house qualification. You can make up a qualification and teach it. And we found there's quite a lot of that. There isn't as much as you might think in the alternative sector because um, Ofqual offers so many courses. But there is some, and it's quite it's not common. But you notice it in areas like psychotherapy where they just they have their own qualification. We can see, you know, I said it was concentrating on uh, sub-bachelors and. Um, uh, Postgraduate, we can see that this is this is level four. We can see that's about sixty percent of providers do that, and then as the levels, the qualification level uh, increases, the the providers decrease uh, level three. So neither of these would actually allow you to graduate with a degree. The level six would, but it's only really about twenty percent of providers that uh, teach at level six to uh, a bachelor's degree, and it's only about forty. Percent and then forty-three percent are concentrating on postgraduate qualifications. You can see that kind of division there. And this tends to be underrepresented. And level eight, that'd be really a doctorate level. But there's a few qualifications in business that um, are pitched at level eight. I think it's probably a marketing ploy, but they exist nevertheless. Um, so okay, that's the levels that they teach at. Um, now let's look at the subjects. Um, what we can see here is, and we looked at, these are the um, providers, um, individual providers, so we totted up how many offer at least one subject in these courses, so you can offer more than these, so it's a, a greater count than the number of this total, but um, nearly 56% are offering some sort of business or administration course, which as you can see massively out strip any other kind of um, course, then subjects allied to medicine, that's often social care uh, courses and with a bit of administration as well. Um, and the third one, creative arts and design, the alternative sector has actually got quite a long history of providing um, creative arts and design. If we look at arts, you know, in its broadest sense, at one stage, that was the 20th century in fact, the only place you could study acting uh, was in a private provider and there's all sorts of other art schools as well if we go down we can see law not many um, providers actually teach law but as we saw from the previous one of the previous slides they got multiple sites so you get at, I think the University of Law's got 22 sites they don't all teach the barristers um, qualification but they've got a they teach all sorts of things to do you know, with law obviously um, so that explains why there aren't many teaching that, but in fact it's got quite a high um, prevalence in the sector. 
So that's the kind of so it doesn't this doesn't really mirror the traditional university sector public sector is teaching something quite different. Although we saw the first slide, we see uh, really quite similar outcomes, or at least apparently similar outcomes. Um, what they tend to f focus on are um, popular and cheap to provide courses, so the overheads are low, or ones that they're long established at providing, particularly when, as in the case of acting, there was an absence in the public sector of teaching it. So there was a, there was a, a gap in the market. Um, and some of these, biological science, that's almost entirely um, composed of um, psychology, yeah, cheap, popular. And we get down, you know, medicine, dentistry, things with a lot, a lot of overheads requiring a lot of investment that barely features. So that's the subjects that we see in the alternative sector. And we all also um, see that the the type of student that attends um, alternative providers is, is quite distinct here in the public sector. You can see that white makes up 71% in terms of ethnicity and anything else about 30%. And we can see it's not quite reversed, but we can see <coughs> a far greater proportion of um, BME students at alternative uh, providers and far less um, white. Um, and we can also see differences in terms of age as well. In the public sector, we see you know, um, about 80% are 24 years old or less. We can see you know, it's almost 40% are um, 30 years or older in the alternative sector. Um, so they're a completely different student profile that are attending uh, courses. On the, but these, I should say, are ones on designated courses. So these aren't include the the barrister trainee barristers we refer to aren't included to do a, a course, a professional course like that you'd never have got, never been. Um, Public funds have never been available for that. So these are, this is HESA data on uh, designated courses. And now we come really to the sort of core of the publicly funded uh, students um, and their fate and why the first slide I showed you might be somewhat misleading. We can see here percentage of full-time students on designated courses in professional employment by provider type. So he's has got this distinction between professional and non-professional um, employment. And we can see for postgraduate, which is uh, an area which um, alternative sector focuses on and has historically provided in you know, a professional education and other people are pursuing postgraduate interests. Um, that the, the different there is margin there's well barely seeing no difference they're basically hitting the same rates of professional employment and when we look at those pursuing first degree or finishing a first degree we can see that there's already a gap there between public and alternative providers and um, the gaps are even greater although of course the success rates are smaller for other undergraduates that would be people put doing um, HNDs and HNCs and things like that we can see even even greater gap there. Um, so it's here when we actually investigate the destinations of the uh, levers that we can see the differences between the alternative and the public sectors emerging. And we can break it also down by subject. Now, this isn't everyone. These are just people that responded to the um, to the uh, survey, and I haven't included every subject. 
So social studies, not actually many people doing it, but very many failing to get um, uh, a professional occupation. So these are all in non-professional occupations. We can see about 60% who've done business studies, and by far the largest number, uh, are also failing to get, and that's you know, something that's deeply rooted and characteristic of the of this subject of the alternative sector. Not many people in law um, at all, but uh, you know, doesn't guarantee you access to a professional occupation. Creative arts, again, these often, as I said, like well established in the alternative sector, uh, quite low proportions for the professional occupation. Although there's quite a large number of them. Now, one of the other reasons why occupational status is important isn't just the effect it has or the consequences for the student. Um, it's now a critical measure for institutions. Um, so the Office for Students uses the number of uh, students and professional occupations as a basis to assess whether to grant an institution uh, Office for Student recognition and inclusion on their register. And that itself is important because access to students with public-backed tuition fee loans, that is course designation, is dependent on inclusion on the register. If you get on the register, you get access to course designation. And so far, last time I looked, 386 institutions have been um, placed on the register. Uh, all the established universities are on the list. The decisions on several private providers are still outstanding. There was an article, I think, in... It wasn't the Times Higher Education, it was wonky, I think, where we were looking at who exactly were these institutions that hadn't been granted this yet, as this still ongoing, we're already into the new academic year, it should have probably been finished up by now, um, but it hasn't, and basically they're alternative providers, but they weren't, I don't think they came to any sort of conclusion about who they were. But this is an example of um, the OFS in action, so something called the Bloomsbury Institute, which used to be called the London Institute of Business and Finance, and it's quite a large provider, and it certainly had ambitions uh, to gain degree awarding powers. You could see that in their filed um, <coughs> their filed um, accounts. Anyway, so the Bloomsbury Institute, like all other um, institutes with um, ambitions to uh, be registered by the OFS, submitted their application, but their application was refused. Um, and this is what the OFS, so I took this straight from what the OFS said, so they had problems with the continuity rate, so that's moving from one year to the next along your degree programme or study programme. Um, that is, you know, the, the less traditional student, the more tr non-traditional students you have, the higher, the worse continuity rate you have, but that's often taken into account with benchmark figures. But nevertheless, the FS was still concerned about that. But also the rate of progression to graduate employment, in particular progression to professional and managerial jobs or postgraduate study shows the institutes fail to demonstrate that it is a successful outcomes for its higher education students. And it's on that the, the base of these that they were denied registration, which means that hitherto they are getting students with um, tuition fee loans, but now they can't recruit anymore. They can, the ones that have already got it can continue to get it. It's called limited designation, which is a new concept they've introduced. It's rather like teaching out, but um, the Bloomington Institute might still be able to continue without um, students with uh, public loans if it can 
increase the success rate and thereby reapply next year and get it. Um, but we can see how important designate the destination of students has become, not just for them, but for the institutions. So that's why... No, is this a... No, I think I've repeated that. And then just to conclude, so graduate employment is not only an institute for the individuals of graduates, but now used to shape the alternative higher education sector. That's feeding into that. Um, and although a common regulatory framework has been constructed, and it's likely to dissolve some difference between public and private providers, principally in terms of the source of their funding, which they can now if you're on this in one of the categories of uh, registration, you can apply for grants and uh, for teaching and research. And so, really, you're dissolving the different sources of funding between public and private. But a large proportion of the private providers are excluded from regulation. Their standards are going to go unmonitored because they're, they're simply excluded from any kind of oversight. So we won't know what the standards of their teaching are or have any access to that, and nor will we know what the fate of their graduates is. And that's, that's the conclusion of my talk. Thank you.